This is Joseph Gervasi. I'm here with Dean Sabatino, a.k.a. Dean Clean of the Dead Milkmen. Today is the 19th of May, 2014. We are conducting this interview in my home in the Roxborough neighborhood of Philadelphia. And this is part of Loud Fast Philly. Hello, Dean. Hello, Joseph. Thank you for coming to my home. Thanks for having me here. Well, we'll begin uh, with young Dean. Uh, where were you born and when? Um, I was born in 1962 in Camden, New Jersey, of all places. All right. I grew up in Camden County. Cooper Hospital. And uh, the reason uh, was my father was a, a teacher, and his first teaching job was at Camden High School. This is early 60s. Um, I only lived there for like six months, so... Okay. What was the state? Do you know what the state of Camden was at the time that he was teaching there? I don't, and I've only recently talked to him a little bit about it, or he's mentioned it in passing. Um, I actually started working a job recently there, and he was in Camden. Yeah, he was curious to know, you know, what the neighborhood and, and things were like. And I'm right near the hospital, and um, of course, he was telling me, "Oh, is so you know, so and so restaurant there?" And I was like, "No, I don't think any of that stuff is there <laughs> yeah. anymore." Um, but what happened was, uh, six months after I was born, he got invited, or he um, got a teaching job in Upper Bucks County, and it was the place that he had done his student teaching. Mm -hmm. And so we moved up uh, to a small town off of Route 309 in Upper Bucks, and that's uh, where I spent my, my early years. Okay. What was the town like uh, growing up there? It's a small rural town, you know, bucolic um, farms, and uh, we had one, one traffic light in the middle of town. Mm -hmm. the, the town was called Trumbowersville. Okay. It's near Quaker Town. Okay. And, um, yeah, that's where, you know, I lived there during my grade school years. Yeah, it sounds like a nice place to grow up in. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, out in the country. I was back uh, a little while ago, and, uh, you know, of course, there's, like, housing developments where all the, yeah. the pastures used to be. That's depressing. Yeah. It's <laughs> so, the way of the world. Yeah, that's the yeah. way it goes. Uh, so tell me a bit about young you, uh, you know, growing up, your interests, what, what you were up to in, in this place. Um... Uh, my mother is an artist and my father was a teacher you know I got into art early on um, uh, I got into music um, I remember watching uh, like the high school marching bands for parades and I remember seeing the drummers and thought that you know that would be something I'd want to do so drums then straight away was yeah my first instrument was drums and I started taking lessons um, in in actually in sixth grade uh, to backtrack a little bit and my father was a teacher and he took a sabbatical leave um, when I was 10 11 years old and we actually lived in England for a year mm -hmm. so I went to fifth grade in England in around 1972 um, so that was kind of an interesting year to grow you know what, how how did you uh, adapt to that or what was you know the, I mean, there must have been very sharp contrast to yeah it was very different I mean going from public school here to what they called public school, but I still had to wear a uniform. So it was sort of like going to Catholic school over there. Mm -hmm. um, I was mostly accepted. You know, there were some kids that would, uh, you know, make fun of the, the yank in, right, in, right. The, in the class. Um, but I had a good year there. I think I had a pretty good year there. Um, and it, uh, when, when I came back is when I actually started playing drums in sixth grade. Do you have any of the Anglophile in you? 
I do. I really enjoyed living there. In fact, I still have one of my friends from that year I'm still friends with who, you know, lives outside of London. And I, we've been back to see our friends many times over the years. So it did make a lasting impression. Right. Yeah, so it was kind of cool. Uh, so you came to be playing. Did you play in marching band then? Yeah, I started in sixth grade and then uh, I, I was in marching band and orchestra throughout high school. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I kept kept up with it. Were your interest in music outside of that realm? Well, um, so you're you're talking like mid seventies. Uh, um, I was actually into prog rock. I'm a huge prog rock. Okay, fan, which probably comes through in some of the interviews. But, so uh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I was a, a I got into prog rock, and uh, my first concert was at the Philadelphia Spectrum. It was uh, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. Fantastic. Um, what uh, record were they touring on? You know, I don't even remember which record it was. Um, it was probably around 1978 or so. That was kind of late in there. Yeah. Was it, was it, was it Love Beach? I, it might have been the one before Love Beach. I'm not sure. I hope it wasn't Love Beach because that's a <laughs> terrible record. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, but, you know, I was into them and uh, uh, yeah, yeah, I saw Yes at the Spectrum. I saw Rush a couple of times. In fact... I, I saw Rush after I had sort of transitioned into punk rock. I remember seeing Blondie open for Rush at the Spectrum, which is just it's a bizarre cause. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's going to be two very distinctive audiences, kind of. Yeah, I imagine that I was one of the few people in the audience who actually appreciated both bands. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it was at a certain point um, that... I think I saw a TV show about punk rock that um, must have been, you know, 78 or 9. I don't know. It was later. It was, it was later. And I was with a friend of mine um, who had wanted to get a guitar. And he. we watched the show. It was at his house. And we both, I remember, you know, thinking, you know, if these people can do this, we could probably do the same thing, you know, mm-hmm. in our crude way. Okay. And... Um, so he and I, you know, started to play music together a little bit. Um, he was teaching himself how to play guitar, and uh, you know, I'd come over with my drum kit and we'd play in his basement. So did you have a band name? We yeah, we started out as a band. It was just a duo. We could never seem to find a bass player, so we had a duo, which I guess has become kind of popular these yeah, days. Yeah, but it was guitar and drums, and he sang. And initially, we were called Zero. Mm-hmm. And uh, at a certain point, we changed our name to Narthex. What, what is Narthex? Is that a drug? No, a Narthex, um, it comes actually from, an. Uh, I think the inspiration was from an Edward Gorey book. Are you familiar with the mm-hmm. artist? Mm-hmm. Um, he had a book, and I'm not sure which one it was, but um, he mentions the word Narthex. Maybe it was N for Narthex. We looked it up, and, it, it, and I remember it has something to do with a church. It's like the like the entryway or the uh, anteroom to the main sanctuary of a church. Okay. That wasn't which, that thing where he did something for every one of the letters? I think that's probably okay. where it came yeah. from. Um, Amphigory, maybe? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it didn't really have any relationship to the music that we were making, but it's it just cool sounded name. cool and yeah, it had yeah. an X in it, you yeah. know? X is always good. So, <laughs> um, so, yeah, so he and I continued to play, and this was, you know, towards the end of my... Uh, high school career he was a couple he was a couple years older than i was so he graduated before i did um and um we didn't play too many gigs um we did a couple of things um 
I think the first gig we actually played, there was a place up in Allentown, Pennsylvania, that had shows. Like, it was a very sort of arty place. It was called EGADS. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever heard of that no, before. No. Um, I remember going there um, before we, I'm pretty sure it was before we played there, and to see the Stickmen from Philadelphia, mm-hmm. who just blew us away. We thought they were amazing. And um, somehow we managed to cobble a, probably a demo tape or something, you know, a cassette, right. and give it to somebody there, and they managed to put us on a bill. I have no idea who we played with at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was our first live gig. It wasn't even in Philadelphia. It wasn't until uh, a little while later that we, we played in Philly for the first time. Do you recollect how, how it went over with audience or even with you? Um, I think it went over okay. It was kind of strange, I think, people seeing a band that didn't have a bass player. It was just a guitar and drums. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it seemed to go over. You know, we were sort of frenetic and uh you know maybe some of my prog rock tendencies in drumming were evident since there were only two of us maybe i was trying to fill fill more space right, so you were the carl palmer the yeah band. right right were there singing was there singing from one of you or both yeah, of you? mike would sing and play guitar at the same oh, okay, time right. mm-hmm. so so i guess you didn't then cast cast off the the prog records as you moved into the the punk and new wave i kept them around for a while um but i gradually left that stuff behind and, and got more and more into um punk and new wave music i guess mm-hmm. um so yeah that was i mean that was sort of we were not like a, a you know super punk or, or not like hardcore or anything we were more towards the sort of art rock new wave quirky it would be a good word to describe our <laughs> right, sound right. Mm-hmm. so uh, you, you came to play in Philadelphia then at some point we did um, the first show we, well that's yeah the first show we played um, in Philly was um, there was a place near the art museum called the landmark tavern um, it was just a corner dive bar mm-hmm. and um, a woman named uh, Linda Linda McGothigan, I think was her name was putting on shows there, and um, I don't know the circumstance, but somehow um, our our friend Dave, who we'll figure later in the Milkman uh, history, um, may, maybe he met her at Temple University or something, but somehow he managed to drag her up to Upper Bucks County to see us rehearse one day. So she came up from She Philly actually came to, up yeah, to Philly to see us. Quite an endeavor. Yeah. And she said, yeah, yeah, I'll put all, you know, you can come and play at the Landmark. And we played a show at the Landmark. I think we played two shows there. Um, And in fact, I'm pretty sure um, uh, Joe Gennaro, Joe Joe came to see us at least one of those times. Mm -hmm. Um, So we played there first, but it it wasn't too much longer after that that we managed to get a show at the Eastside Club uh, as an opener. That must have been a big deal. It was, was a big deal, actually, because um, somehow, um, I, I guess this was, um, by this time we're talking like early 80s, 82 maybe, and I was going to art school in Philly by this time. Where were you going? I went to the Art Institute okay. on Chestnut Street. Um, I would be in, uh, I would actually go home on the weekends to play rehearse with Mike but I would stay in Upper Darby at my grandparents' house. My uh, grandfather was still working at the time. He, he, and, his, he and his brother ran a uh, 
shoe repair tailor shop on Garrett Road in Upper Darby, and they had a spare room, and I would stay there during the week and take the train into into Philly from 69th Street and go to school during the week, and then I would go home on the weekends. What sort of art were you doing? What was um, the the Art Institute? Or I went to school for commercial art, so. Um, this is before computers too, so okay. I was learning how to, you know, cut amber lifts and spec type and all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. that the computer does automatically for you these days. Right. Um, so yeah, graphic design and and, uh, uh, and that kind of stuff, commercial art they called it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was in Philadelphia during the week, and I, I probably um, I don't know somehow got a tape a cassette tape to Bobby Startup, who was booking at the um, Eastside Club at the time. And the thing I remember is is that I gave it to him like early in the week and um, was quite shocked when Mike got a call like two days later saying, hey, do you guys want to play this Friday? Mm-hmm. And we were like, what? And, he, and it turned out that I guess there was the Damned were supposed to play. And you were going to play with the Damned? Well, uh, they canceled. Okay. And so whoever was opening for them got pushed up to be the headliner. Okay. And we were going to open up that show. Mm-hmm. So he put us on. Our first show as an opener on a Friday night. We were shocked. And um, we were also a little bit scared because, you know, the crowd is probably not going to be too happy that the Damned aren't showing <laughs> yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. And who was the band that wound up playing? I oh, wish yeah. I could remember. I um I almost want to say a band called Physical Push, but I'm not sure. I'd have to look at an old uh, Eastside schedule. Mm -hmm. Um, So we played that show, um, which was a big deal for us, obviously, and we went over really well. I remember people coming up to us afterwards, you know, asking us about our band and and talking to us. So that was kind of, you know, exciting and Mm -hmm. Uh, surprising. <laughs> had you attended events at Eastside Club prior? Yeah, to I would kind of sneak in once in a while. I had a, a you know, doctored my driver's license. You were under eight. Did they yeah. care even? I mean, it seems in some of the interviews that it, that maybe some folks over there didn't really care who was coming in. I think not. it depended on who was at the door. I remember there was a, a notorious door guy named Seamus who was there. He used to be a, a doorman at a couple of clubs back then. And I remember him checking IDs, but maybe if you went there on the right night, or maybe if you didn't go on a, if you went on a night other than Friday or Saturday, they didn't care. Mm-hmm. I never, I guess they had the membership deal where you somehow you, you got a membership to the club, and they would able be able to stay open late. Okay. That's the other thing I remember about there. The shows were just incredibly late. Like the headliner might go on at one in the morning or something. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> pretty painful. Yeah. Uh, Prior to, to coming to art school in Philly, did you have um, a relationship with the city? Were you coming in for other events? Um, well, I mean, when I would, my my uh, my grandparents were, were still, you know, my grandparents, my father's side lived in Upper Darby and my mom's side or from like the Aston Chester area. And we would come down on weekends and occasionally go into the city, but... Um, for the most part, my main exposure to the city was once I started art school. Okay, I imagine the city is going to provide a stark contrast to the, the region that you. Yeah, in, in fact, in fact, a lot of people I, you know, a lot of people I went to high school with probably have never been to Philadelphia, and they're only an hour away. Yeah, so that's depressing. Yeah, that's crazy. Uh, what did you think of the city upon you know spending some time here, and and maybe you could describe a little bit what the city was like in you know, sort of general terms at the, at that time, uh, early nineteen eighties. Um, I mean, I enjoyed being in the city. I enjoyed going to school. the The first location 
the school was originally located on Cherry Street near where I think the Four Seasons is now. Mm-hmm. Like six months into my school, they knocked down the building and you know, we moved over to Chestnut Street. And, uh, but I mean, you know, we were around, uh, we were close to Rittenhouse Square, so we used to go there for lunch. Um, you know, there were other art students, there were the, the Moore College of Arts right near there, mm-hmm. so we were around, we were right in the heart of Center City, so it was kind of nice to be in that uh, environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and as an art student, you know, I'd, I'd keep my eyes open, like, this is back in the day when, you know, you would make flyers for your shows and, you know, stick them up on you know, uh, light poles and wherever yeah. else you could get them up and there. Practice, I think, some people are still engaging in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so, weed pasting them all. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, it, I think it was good. I mean, as a, you know, I was a young art student, just had my eyes open for all kinds of, you know, design and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I said, I would go home on the weekends. I wouldn't, like, hang out or come into the city on my own on the weekends or anything. So. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if there's anything else about this particular band that we should talk about, or should we begin to transition into the into the Milkman? Um, we could do that. I mean, we we basically we played uh, a handful of live shows, we, um, uh, probably until 1983. What led to the demise of the um, band? Mike? Kind of decided he didn't uh, want to do it anymore. Um, I did. I think that uh, playing live was very stressful for him. I guess he felt a lot of pressure. He's, you know, we didn't have a bass player. There was no third person to yeah, look yeah, over to. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's just me him. and him and him singing. And I'm sure there was a lot of pressure there. So um, he just decided at some point that he didn't want to do it anymore. And um, which, you know, I was disappointed, but you no, know, life goes on. Right. Um, but you had a few years there. Did you record any material? We did, time? actually. We were, <laughs> strangely, we recorded a an album, a 10-song album, uh, I guess in 82, um, but it was never really released other than our own homemade cassette versions of it mm-hmm. um, until about um, the mid-90s when we got a hold of the master tapes. I mean, they were, I think Mike had them in his closet somewhere. Right. And um, we had a friend of ours um, remix them and, uh, you know, remaster them. And we actually had uh, had it come out on CD. You can actually get it. You can actually get Narthex music on iTunes and CD Baby oh, nice. now. Yeah, um, uh, a small label. Um, do you, are you familiar with uh, Skip Heller, Philadelphia mm-hmm. musician, uh, guitar player? He's done like jazz and and country music. He actually, I think, he lives out in LA now. Yeah, the name isn't familiar to me. But um, he had a small label. Um, I forget how we came, we came in contact with him, but he had he had heard Narthex somewhere, and you know, so he kind of spearheaded us like getting the album re-released, and it was kind of strange to to see it on iTunes now again. You know, it's still there. You can still get it. It's just yeah. kind of odd. How do you feel in looking back and hearing these things? I mean, are you pleased with what you? Yeah, to do? I'm generally pleased with with it. You know, if if anything. You know, I could say we were ahead of our time with just the guitar drum duo kind of yeah, thing. That's true. So, yeah, it was fun. It was a good thing. But when it ended, I wanted to keep playing. So, mm-hmm. and were there other bands after, but before uh, Dead Milkman, or did you? Uh, no, there were not. Then how how does this come to be? <laughs> um, so, um, well, my high school friend. Uh, David Reckner um, 
we, we graduated in 1980, and he went on to go to Temple University to the radio, television, and film program there. And um, he met, I guess, Joe Gennaro in some of his classes, and they became friendly. And um, I don't think I met Joe before, but um, Dave, I, while I was in the city going to art school, I would occasionally go to classes at Temple with Dave, like they would need extras for their film projects and things like that. Mm -hmm. So I was around that environment. And at some point, um, I guess it was um, uh, the like the Christmas of 82, um, Joe and his uh, housemates in Maniunk were going to throw a Christmas party. And uh, they invited my friend Dave, who invited me, and we, we went to that party. And that's where I, I met uh, Joe Gennaro, and I met um, I probably met Dave Schulte's Dave Blood there, probably, and his brother Joe, I guess, was one of the housemates. That would have been around here then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was on uh, Baker Street in, um, in Maniunk, I mean, way before Maniunk became hip and trendy. Um, I always remember a story, uh, uh, Dave's brother Joe... Schulteis had a girlfriend who had like pink hair and a mohawk or whatever, you know, mm -hmm. definitely looked punk. Um, and they were coming home one day, this is in Maniunk, and the, the street kids or whatever, the little kids or whatever, used to yell out, yo, yo, boy, George, yo. <laughs> um, and then uh, one day Joe came back and uh, his girlfriend wasn't there. And I was like, oh, you know, where's your girlfriend? Where's your girlfriend? And, and Joe, she was going to art school, I guess, and, and she was doing a semester abroad. And he said, oh, she's over in Italy, you know. And they were like, oh, where's that? And he's, and, you know, is that up in the Northeast? They didn't know where it like, was. Uh, <laughs> it I, was crazy. I think there are segments of Maniunk and certainly Roxborough that are still like, it's just those people older. Yeah. So, um, so it was, you know, it's a little rough, but it was, it was fun. It was like, it was a crazy house. Um, but I met them at that Christmas party and I don't even, I don't even know if they, they told me they had a band at that point. But I did meet them there, and it was only a few months later where, I guess through Dave, I found out that they had a band and they were looking for a drummer, and did I want to go over and see what they were up to? Mm -hmm. And so I did, and um, and it was that we we uh, had a little audition rehearsal thing at the uh, Maniunk House, and you know I thought it went pretty well uh, the thing that impressed me was is that they had all these songs already written mm -hmm. it wasn't like we would have to like start from scratch and write right. song zero mm -hmm. they had like a pile of songs already and I thought well this is pretty cool you know I, I, I'd be into this if you know and then you know they asked me to to be the drummer which was great um, but at that time I uh, I didn't eat I didn't meet Rodney I only met Joe and Dave, and I only played music with Joe and Dave. So Where was Rodney at the time? He, I guess, was still going to school out in Westchester. Okay. Um, and I guess they, you know, they told me, oh, you know, this guy Rodney, who, you know, Joe said, I went to high school with him. He writes the words or whatever, and, and I write the music and stuff. So Joe was singing all the songs, and Joe and Dave were, you know, Dave was playing bass, Joe was playing guitar and singing, and I, I would do the drums. And we rehearsed a couple times. Um... And it was only like maybe two or three months later, um, I managed to snag us to get on. We managed to get on a, 
uh, a bill at the Harleysville Youth Center. Mm-hmm. Um, and what was this place like? Um, it was basically like a you know a community center out in Harleysville, Pennsylvania, out in farm country. Um, I th- I don't know exactly how it happened. But I think uh, another friend from Temple had a band. I think they were called the Singles, and they were going to play and. So, you know, we, we kind of tagged along and got added to the bill. Was there a scene associated with that place? I mean, when you think of playing out in I like, think it's Montana, just like, who the fuck is going to be Yeah, there? I think it's just some kids got together, or, you know, somebody said, let's put on a show, or some maybe maybe the quote-unquote headlining band. I can't. Even, I think it was, um, it actually might have been John Worcester's first band, like Hair Club for Men. Maybe uh, that's the okay. connection. Uh-huh. Um, but, uh, yeah, we managed to get a gig, and the odd thing was is that we showed up to the gig and this guy Rodney was there and Joe introduces me. Hi, this is Rodney. Mm-hmm. He's going to sing tonight. So I met Rodney at our very first show. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> I didn't know what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and we played the show. There was probably maybe 20, 25 people there and they were just horrified at <laughs> what they were watching. Well, what, was, what were your thoughts then in seeing, I mean, Rodney is a singular personality so oh, yeah, in, in yeah. seeing him like you know perform perform yeah like how, how do you how do you take that at the i time? thought it was awesome i mean we had i remember we had a great time it was it was a lot of fun um you know i have no idea what the rest of the audience thought i guess you know we survived well we we all had fun and we liked it enough to keep going mm-hmm. and so you know from that point on then rodney was always around to to do the singing part of it which probably re- relieved Joe a little bit, I guess. Right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I'm always, it seems surprised that he would be doing any singing because he always seems to be so shy. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's kind of a quiet person. <laughs> yeah. Uh, where, where did your uh, nom de, de punk come from? Um, I just kind of made it up. Um, when, I, when I started playing with those guys, you know, they all had these, these fake names or whatever, and I figured, well, I better have one too. And I... I don't know how I came up with Dean Clean. Just because it rhymed, maybe it was yeah. easy enough to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so I figured I'd better join in the in the fun. Right. Yeah. So things proceed. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's see. So uh, so I graduated. It was a, a two-year program. I graduated. I ended up um, getting a job still up in Upper Bucks County, but I would... Um, either commute down to Joe's place in Maniunk or uh, at least once or twice we would go to Dave's parents' house in Ridley Park or the guys would come up and stay the weekend at my parents' and we'd rehearse in my basement. Mm -hmm. And we did a lot of rehearsing and um, I I couldn't tell you exactly when the first uh, like all-ages show we played in Philly well, and let's, let me backtrack. I guess the first show we played was outside on Pine Street. I think there was a place called the Pine Street Beverage Room. It, it was around 12th and Pine. Mm-hmm. And there was some sort of street fair or something going on. And somehow we managed to get a gig playing there. Was this with other bands that were? Yeah, there were all that? kinds of other other bands there. Um, but I mean, were they were they coming from a punk new wave kind of underground world, or was it a mixed? It was a mixed bag and. Um, <coughs> There, I think there were some real sort of, you know, straight ahead rock and roll, foreigner bad company type stuff going on. Um, 
but you know we we had this we got this gig and i think we were expected to play multiple sets of music and we didn't we didn't have enough material to do that yeah. we could play one set very easily but so we were repeating songs and you know jamming on Hank, the riff from hanky panky for like you know 10 minutes or whatever <laughs> i suppose if people are intoxicated enough yeah the sun maybe it's, it's yeah it was, it was fine it was fine um so that was our first philadelphia show i guess gig um and then uh at some point we we managed to get a show at one of the all ages hardcore shows do you remember what that was or where well uh, I think uh, one of the show well we, we made some homemade cassettes at the time and and I, I'm pretty sure we, we, we passed them around and um, XPN at the time was definitely more student run and so you know uh, people we knew were starting to get DJ jobs there and that kind of thing um, but uh I want to say we recorded, we actually went into the studio. We were going to put out our own, like, nine-song EP. Our songs are so short that it would have... Yeah, you know, it was still on there. Yeah. Um, and uh, what happened was we ran out of money, and then we had a friend who was going to put up some money for us to, to, to finish it. And, uh, like, he, the money dried up. He had a car accident or something. He had to buy a new car. So we had this tape and we didn't have enough money to do anything with it. I, we probably turned it in, into cassettes and passed it around and somehow we got one to XPN and they started to play it a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I mean, one of the early hardcore shows um, was, it was at one of the frats in at University of Pennsylvania. It seems like there was a scene, yeah. There was a scene in West Philly then and uh, um, and this was at a frat that didn't normally have shows, and I can't even remember which one it was, but it was more like on the campus than like DU and Pylam, who who were the typical frats that would have punk rock shows. Um, I seem to remember we played, um, I mean, the show sticks in my mind. Um, I almost want to say JFA was on the bill, mm-hmm. and um, I forget who else. Uh but we played the show, and it was a big crowd, and I guess because of some of the airplay that we had gotten on XPN, a lot of people knew the words, especially to Bitch and Camaro, and mm-hmm. it just kind of freaked us out a little bit. Like, these people are really into this song already. Right. And these, so the songs then that you had recorded on the tape ultimately appeared on the record. They eventually, they, they did appear on Big Lizard, which was the first record that came out in 85. Mm-hmm. They did. What happened was... Um, uh, so somehow, um, uh, a guy named Mike Morrison was the program manager at XPN at the time, and he was a Penn student, and he got the tape, and there was a guy, there was an economics professor, or a, I guess a decision scientist professor named Colin Kammerer, who was teaching at Penn at the time, and he had a label called Fever Records. Um, he was originally from Chicago. Um, so he had some connections in Chicago. I think he had put out records by like the Effigies and this band called um, Get Smart. And I actually, I think he put out the first big black record too. Yeah, nice. yeah. Um, but anyway, so he's this professor at Penn now. And um, my recollection is, is that Mike 
somehow gave him this a, a cassette or whatever and said, you know, these guys are really funny and, uh, you know, creative or whatever. You should check it out. And um, he liked it enough uh, that he said, okay, you know, I'll, I'll put this out or whatever, but, you know, you have to go into the studio and record more songs. There's not enough songs for a full album here. Mm -hmm. So he essentially bankrolled another recording session um, uh, of songs that we had already had written, um, probably 10 more songs, so that we had enough to make a full uh, album release. Did you need to re-record the songs that you already no, had? No, no, no. Okay. We kept the ones that we had recorded. Mm -hmm. We just recorded 10 more to make uh, 19 songs, I guess. There were a couple of other, I think, bonus tracks that we had recorded in the, the basement rehearsal or whatever. I had had a, a four-track cassette recorder and we would make demos and things on that we actually put two songs that we had recorded at home on that first record too mm -hmm. um so he paid for that and you know i, I think the total cost of the album was probably less less than or around a thousand dollars it's crazy to think of now yeah. um and he had some kind of deal with this label in california called enigma records and i guess it was a production and distribution deal um, and they would take a cut and produce and or you know manufacture and distribute through their channels, mm -hmm. which is a good deal for us because it got to more. Uh, I guess the college radio scene back then was much more uh, lively than it is now. Mm -hmm. I don't know what it is anymore. Yeah, I don't really know. Uh, I mean, I mean you know, XPN is, seems to be no longer. I mean, they sort of University of Pennsylvania, but I don't think anybody no. that goes to the college there actually works there anymore. No, it seems to be all singer songwriter. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of disappointing a little bit, but um, it's still K to you. Yeah, that's right. If you can get it, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess you can get it on the internet, but uh, that's true. Not, not quite the driving experience. Yeah. So, um, so, so you know, he he. He put that together, um, and that was going to come out in the summer of 1985. And, you know, we had been playing the all-ages shows that, like, Chuck me in and, and people were putting on um, every couple months or whatever. Mm -hmm. How did Dead Milkman... Did you feel a connection to the scene that you were a part of this punk hardcore thing that was happening or did you feel at all you know set apart from it in some way I mean, where, where we felt it? a part of it but i think we, we we were set apart from a little bit i mean you know i guess people have criticized us for being you know jokers and that kind of thing we I, it's, to a certain uh, aspect of the hardcore scene seemed overly serious to us they were like mm -hmm full of angst and just anger and it's like you know come on have some fun with this and I, I i think we were sort of the antidote to that or the diametrically opposed opposite or whatever you want to call it but uh um you know we we seemed to get people at the shows who thought it was cool and and we went to all the shows even if we weren't playing we would go to those shows um so we were part of the scene um uh yeah, we felt connected, I think. You know, we, we didn't feel like we were ostracized or anything mm -hmm. at all, really. Getting the, the P&D deal through Enigma must have been a pretty big deal because a lot, of the, a lot of Philly bands of the era didn't produce a lot of recorded music. Maybe, maybe there was an EP, but it was rare that a Philly band, especially coming out of that, that part of the underground music scene, released something that was actually going to be circulated around right. the country and ultimately the world. I, yeah, I think we were we were lucky in that regard. Um, I mean, granted that uh, uh, I mean 
we didn't have any other resources to book a tour. I mean, Dave Blood and I went through the scene reports in Maximum Rock and Roll. Right. And, you know, we spent hours on the phone talking to kids in the middle of Iowa and say, can we play in your garage or your basement? That is a classic. I, I mean, <laughs> yeah, but all the bands that I was friends with, you know, some years later, same thing up until the internet. That was the way. That's all we could do. And, you know, we spent the spring. We knew the album was supposed to come out, you know, in June of the summer of 1985. And Dave and I spent the spring trying to line up. A, we were going to go on tour for, you know, two months. The album was going to come out. And then, you know, uh, people would be able to hear it and get it in stores. And, you know, supposedly. Mm-hmm. Of course, it didn't come out until after we were well on tour. <laughs> and that must have been depressing. Yeah, it was. And, you know, we hadn't even considered that. Well, you know, kind of the the distribution channel that Enigma had set up kind of catered to the college radio scene and colleges are not in session in the summertime. Right. And so either the radio stations are, you know, skeleton crew, there's not a lot of people listening to in mm-hmm. the summer. And so, you know, the first tour was kind of a, a disaster learning experience, life learning experience all in one. And it wasn't until like when we got back at the end of August and, and September, when the kids came back to college, that the song, you know, Bitch and Camaro started to take off. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, finally the record got some attention because it had got finally gotten out there and listened to. Right. So, Do you recall any of the bands that you played with on that first tour around the U.S.? Did anybody strike you in particular? Uh, I honestly can't remember. Um, you know, I think we played... I think we tried to book like 40 or 50 shows and we maybe played half of them. Yeah, they always get canceled or, or whatever. Um, I remember we were in uh, California for about two weeks and we played four shows and we made a total of $100. Ah, <laughs> um, we slept on uh, our friend from high school, Dave, who, you know, keeps returning to the story. His aunt lived in Orange County and we, we slept on her floor for two weeks and we just tried and tried and tried to get shows and so it was rough (laughs) (laughs) but i'm sure you can remember this experience oh yeah yeah. impression it was a learning experience yeah uh upon release then of the record i imagine and you say the vision camaro was started to you know gain some airplay and stuff that must have moved things it moved things along by by december of 85 we went back out for like a two or three three week um Midwest tour. Now, granted, again, it's in December and the snow, so we had to deal with like two weeks of snow. Yes. Um, but we played, you know, some shows and started to see a little pickup in the crowds, and people were a little bit more familiar with the with the record and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then from there, you know, I think we did another big tour um, after we recorded the second record in in '86. Okay. So uh, now I don't know if it's if it's jumping forward too much to to talk about how punk rock girl became. You know, quite a big song. Is if there's something you know significant that I'm missing in between. That's... Um, just a lot of touring. I mean, at a certain point, we'd be you know, at a certain point, we quit our our day jobs and and just started playing a lot. I mean, uh, and you know, trying to write songs and come back to Philly and write songs and. Uh, you were then able to support yourself. I mean, at, all a of cer- you- at a certain point, we were, yeah. Um, you know, I mean, and I think we did support ourselves by going on tour and playing shows and 
you know, selling T-shirts or whatever. Just you yeah. know. So it wasn't so much the royalties from record sales. No, yeah. we weren't making a lot of money that right. way. But merch uh, and, and merch and you know, we, we enough to get by and pay our expenses and and you know enough to s- scrape by and pay pay rent. We I mean we had a a band house essentially in West Philly on Forty Fourth Street um, that we lived in for a couple of years. How how was the experience then of being that? intimately involved with your bandmates. I mean, if you're living in the same house, you and then leave you're the house. Van, still, right. Yeah, yeah, and you're in the van. It's a constant, I mean, you know, yeah. these are probably four very distinctive personalities. Yeah. Um, you know, I think for the most part we, we got along. Um, I think we were, you know, we were kind of, we, we had some measure of success, and so that made it a little more tolerable. Um, uh you know, we we still enjoyed writing songs together and and making music and playing shows and stuff. Um, you know, it's, I think essentially we all got along through the whole uh, life of the band, which is quite remarkable. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. A, that's a very long it's very hard to do. Band. It's very hard to yeah, do. I mean, I know you know bands who can manage to maybe eke out like a year or so, but and not even necessarily living in such close quarters and you know, like living communally like Gong or something. They're uh, you know. In different places and coming together just to perform, uh, you know. I think I think the the sort of the the you know the the success that we had started to 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 gain or whatever probably helped the uh, the attitude is like oh you know if we stick together we we might be able to take it a little further and do mm-hmm. do this or that or you know um, and you know we always try to you know maintain our. Uh, band identity and that kind of thing like maintaining creative control with the records and stuff that we put out so mm-hmm. it wasn't like you know somebody outside was trying to point us in another direction that might have caused more friction so. right, right. Philadelphia can be a somewhat prickly city and I'm wondering how uh, your you know, bands that you had been playing with felt about the fact that you had at this point moved up some notches were there little voices little, little knives I don't I mean, I, I don't think I was aware of it. I mean, we were friends with a lot of people like FOD and Electric Love Muffin. Um, uh, if there was, I, I wasn't aware of it. Um, if, if anything, I think, you know, we tried to be uh, ambassadors for Philadelphia because I think Philadelphia has gotten a lot of flack over the years you know it's kind of stuck between dc and new york or whatever yeah. sometimes bands skip over it and that kind of thing mm-hmm. um so i think to a certain extent we tried to be champions of philadelphia and the scene um and we you know people would ask us i, I remember being asked you know what's the philadelphia scene like or whatever and we tell them about you know electric love muffin you should check them out you know they i guess they did some some touring and um our friends, the uh, Mike Morrison from XPN was in a band, uh, Penn students, they were called the Johnsons. They actually ended up coming out with a record on Enigma too, and they did some touring as well. Um, so, you know, we kind of stuck up for Philadelphia. If anything, we tried to spread the word mm-hmm. and get more bands to stop in and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So, One of the things that, that comes up in some of the interviews is that uh, Philly never produced a distinctive sound. Um, that the bands within Philadelphia all had very individual identities and individual uh, ways of expressing themselves musically, which I think is is really interesting. Um, and I think sometimes, especially in talking to people, that it's, it's worked to the city's advantage in so much as um, these are all distinctive bands, 
but has maybe worked to the city's disadvantage sometimes because there's no Philly sound. Um, therefore, when people think of Philly, they may think of a band that they know, but not like a group right. band. Right. Uh, I can see that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's uh, if if anything, I mean, my musical taste is very varied and and wide. So. Um, uh, it's a shame that if it's hurt Philadelphia, and, you know, for not having a sound like we're not like Seattle grunge or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. it's like, if anything, you know, we're, it shows that we're more creative. So yeah, I don't, yeah. you know, yeah, I, I would, I would like to think so as well. Yeah. I, you know, you know um, uh, like I said, you know, we tried to be, uh, cheerleaders and champions for philadelphia and you know like i i can't remember the bands that we played with but you know we would i guess if we could we would try and get their their contact information to chuck or people like that or or you know oh you know you should talk to so and so you know he's the person that puts the all ages shows on or this club would probably be be great for you guys you should talk to them and that kind of thing Mm -hmm. so we tried to get other bands to come to philly (laughs) (laughs) and therefore maybe some local bands could play on those bills Mm -hmm. as well so right super uh, you did achieve a, a great deal of notoriety because of the song Punk Rock Girl. Um, how, how did this become such a thing? You know, how, how was this song picked up and you know, played on MTV and yeah, ultimately you performed uh, on all this? Well, we recorded, we recorded that record down in Austin, Texas. Um, uh, and I guess um, our... our manager dave who was my high school friend you know he went on the first tour to help us drive and he ended up becoming our manager Mm -hmm. um and some other people down there you know i guess they heard the song and it's like they just thought that this is the song that's gonna be popular on this particular record um and I guess the record company thought so too. And of course it's unusual because Rodney's not singing it, Joe's singing it. Right. Um, so, um, does this cause some sort of friction with Rodney who, you know, has a very big personality yes. to have that removed from Yeah, I, I, you know, I think it bothered him some. Um, I, I like what happened with the video where he's kind of the disinterested party reading the newspaper in the background, <laughs> kind of illustrating his feelings about the song at the time. Um, but yeah, somehow people picked up on it and said, you know what, this song is, is catchy and popular and I think it will be what the people will probably pick out of the songs on the album. And it just kind of, it did, it did kind of take off. Um, and it just kind of snowballed from there. Um, we did we did a video for it. We did it at the Eastern State Penitentiary. Um, what was the state of Eastern State at the time? Was it open to? It was or, not okay. open to, to the public. We actually um, I, we got permission to use it as a location shoot. Um, I think uh, oh, what's her name? I can't remember her name. Somebody else used it for a video. Who sang? What's love got to do with it? Tina Turner. Tina, yeah, yeah, I think she did that. Oh, at Eastern State. Yeah, from I can't that movie. Remember, mo- remember that movie? Uh, uh, that song is from. I can't remember. Yeah. It was, it's like a dystopian. Mad- oh, it was a Mad Max. It was, Ma- it was Beyond Thunder. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah, Mad okay. Max. Oh. I think that they did the video in, in Eastern State oh, there too. Shit. <laughs> so, 
No, it was in disrepair. It was not open to the public. Um, so it was kind of cool. We got to wander around probably where you really were not supposed to. Like, I remember going up into the guard tower. Can you go up into the guard no, tower I now? I don't think so. I've, I've seen parts of it, but it seems like they'll, they'll open some parts and then something will cave in and then they'll close yeah. that part. Uh, that place is amazing. Yeah, we probably shouldn't have been where we were. Could have gotten killed. But anyway. <laughs> I'm glad you're still alive. Yeah, we... Uh, yeah, we shot the video there, and um, MTV picked up on it and started playing it and playing it. And this is in, I guess the thing that amazed us all was is that this is the era of the hair metal bands on MTV, and we were starting to get it more, you know, airplay in the top ten videos and that kind of thing. Yeah. It was just kind of Clearly bizarre. the antithesis of, of all of that. Yeah. 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 And also, I read somewhere that the, the song, it mentioned that the song was sung in very distinctive Philly accents, and I thought that at the time when I would have initially heard the song, I never would have noticed that, that it was sung in a Philly accent because I spoke in the same way and everyone around me spoke the way. I don't speak quite that way now. But yeah, so it's just funny to think that that was something that would be so distinct for other people to hear to out pick of up the on, region. Yeah, yeah, it is unusual. Yeah, it's kind of amazing that it got played on MTV. Um, so... Yeah, I guess, and that and they, that led to enough popularity on MTV. I, I guess we did a guest host thing on 120 Minutes with Kevin Seal, mm-hmm. and um, which I contend that we were maybe one of the first bands to play acoustically on MTV because we took acoustic instruments up and we did acoustic songs on that show. Did the songs ever appear anywhere? Um, you can find them. You can find them on YouTube and and stuff. But uh, we, we didn't release them, but we played acoustically in the studio. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, you probably heard of our uh, Club MTV appearance. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, we showed, uh, when I did the live version of this thing a couple times, we have the piece You know of, that clip? That clip, yeah, we show, which is always one of the top three clips that... that oh, that was crazy. People go bananas when they watch that, because it's, it's really great. For those who haven't seen it, because it, I think it kind of re- appears on... Uh, YouTube sometimes and then it gets yoinked yeah. by MTV. Can you kind of describe what, yeah, what the yeah. scenario was? Well, for that? the show was like a, a like a sort of a modern day version of American Bandstand, hosted by downtown Julie Brown, and she would have she would play music and they would have. I guess I I didn't even watch the show enough. I guess they would have bands kind of come on and lip sync to their songs, and the kids would dance to music, and they you know it's like a dance show for kids. Yeah. <clears throat> and somebody had the bright idea that they would want the Dead Milkmen to appear on the show and us to, you know, lip sync to Punk Rock Girl. And we said, no, 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 we, we don't want to do that show. And I think, actually, the day that we did that show, I'm pretty sure we had a show down in D.C. at, like, the 930 Club. Mm-hmm. And so we had to, like, go to New York, take the train to New York and do the show and then go back in the evening. So a lot of traveling. Yeah. Um, so we, we said, no, 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 no. And, you know, they, you know, come on, you got to do the show. You know, it's, or it's good for your publicity, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. So we came up with a concept. I mean, we wanted, we said, okay, well, we'll do it if we can play live. We want to, you know, we want to play live. We don't want to lip sync to the song. And they said, no, 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 you can't do that. Nobody plays live to the song. Well, was, the, was the concern that the show was illegitimate and would make you look like buffoons or would yeah it just seemed it didn't seem like the thing that was right for us at the time i don't know you know it just didn't it seemed so weird since they wouldn't let us play live we said okay well if we have to lip sync then we have a list of demands and so for instance rodney demanded to you know he doesn't sing so what's he going to do so he demanded a sousaphone so he marched around on stage with the sousaphone Uh 
Dave Blood said, I want a large cardboard box and a black magic marker. And he wrote bass amp on it, B-A-S-E-A-M-P. And he jammed his, you know, chord or something into the box. I said, you know, I want a big, massive drum kit, you know, prog rock style or whatever. And Joe, you know, had like double Marshall amps or whatever. I mean, he was used to playing this little combo amp on stage and he had these big Marshall amps. And so... We went up to do the show, and uh, we also took along our friend uh, Chris, who's a comedian here in Philly, and we bought the large bags of uh, rubber worms from, mm-hmm. like, uh, you know, Kmart or something, some fishing supply or whatever. So we had these huge bags of rubber worms, and so the, the idea was we were going to play on this stage, and the kids would dance, and I think they had us, like, run through the number to get their ca- camera angles and stuff. And then they were going to shoot it for real. Mm-hmm. And so when they shot it for real, we had Chris behind the stage lobbing rubber worms <laughs> over us uh-huh. into the audience, onto the dancing crowd or whatever. And it was just pandemonium. You know, they're, they're cranking the, the music. We're just up there. I'm, I'm not even <laughs> pretending to play the real song. I'm just hitting cymbals and making mm-hmm. noise. And Rodney's running around with the, 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 the sousaphone. And Joe's laughing and trying to sing at the same time. <laughs> How could you have ever thought not to do this event? I mean, considering what you wound up doing with it. it was, I, it's I know. So fantastic. We should have been smarter from the get-go. Yeah. But um, so... So we play this show and, you know, where we play the song and they got it on tape. And then there's like a segment where she, uh, downtown Julie Brown, the host, comes up and, you know, does the little end tag or whatever and says, you know, thanks, guys, blah, blah, blah. And at this point, Rodney pulls out a pair of handcuffs and decides to handcuff himself to downtown Julie Brown. Uh And she starts to panic because the kids are now picking up the rubber worms from the floor and starting to pelt all of us on the stage. (laughs) Which includes her. Which includes her. And she is freaking out. And Ronnie pulls out a key and throws it into the audience. (laughs) And she's shrieking. And so he pulls out another key and locks. And she runs off to her dressing room and starts crying. (laughs) Meanwhile, you know... Do you feel bad at this point? Well, she got over it. But, I mean, we got... We got thanked by the staff saying, hey, this is the most fun we've had ever on this show. <laughs> it must be great for them. Yeah. And then does she reappear with you later? To she does. At the end, you? she does a little end of the show tag segment and we're around her. We, you know, we apologize. Yeah, I think she asks like, well, are you, are you on tour? And then maybe Joe says like, oh yes, we're playing in Idaho right now or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it kind of ended well and, and I don't know how often it got shown on TV. Um at least once, because I think that's where that footage you see now that appears on M- MTV. I mean, we, we put out a video compilation in 2003, I guess, or 2004, 2003. And we had wanted to include that that whole segment on the tape. And I think uh, whoever runs MTV archives wanted like, you know, $10,000 or something yeah, ridiculous. Yeah. And we're like, ah, oh, no, I'm sorry, we can't afford yeah. that. That's yeah, a drag. Yeah. Uh, it, it kind of an aside question. If you're lip-syncing on a TV show, and the, I assume they're playing the, the taped music to the audience to dance to, mm-hmm. and I can see stringed instrument people you know, playing, but nothing's coming out of the amp, what does the drummer do? Do you actually hit the drums? Are you supposed, like, what uh, I guess it depends on the situation. In my case, they didn't have anything to muffle them. or So I was just kind of hitting cymbals and a drum. I mean, it was loud. Um, I think you can kind of catch a little bit of the sound of it at the end of the clip 
like when the real track finishes, I play a couple times past. Uh-huh. Um, it was loud, you know. I, I it, they had it cranked, and I you know tried to at least stay on the beat, but I was not making any attempt to do the real <laughs> right. drum part. So <laughs> I think in some cases they they muffle things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so going on from there, uh, that was probably the the most public uh, of of you know appearances, and and like the song probably achieved the most. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, what does the band do then in the wake of that? We we keep touring, and we you know we put out uh, more records after that. Um, uh, you know, we never I, we never achieved. Uh, you know that level of success with the song after that, mm-hmm. but we you know we were still popular enough to keep touring and uh, keep putting records out um, until the early '90s. Through that entire time, did you feel that you were still moved creatively with the band? I mean, there was never a point where you think you know this is this is my job, so we should probably keep producing. Um, yeah, I think you know. I mean, you know, we were we had been. Uh, doing it full time now i guess for a few years um and um yeah i mean we were still writing songs and and you know doing again doing the kind of music or make making the songs that we wanted to make um i don't think we tried to conform you know oh we got to write another punk rock girl or anything i don't think i don't think we had that kind of pressure in our minds Mm -hmm. um you know, we would certainly hope to have uh, something catch on again like that. But, um, you know, I guess the early 90s is when Nirvana happened and think the college music scene kind of changed mm-hmm. uh, a little bit. So, What precipitated the end of the band in that incarnation? Um, well, I was the one who, uh, at, uh, I guess it was 93 or 94, I can't remember which year. But by that time, I was becoming a little burned out on the touring because we would go on tour, you know, anywhere from six to nine months out of the year. I mean, we played a lot of shows, um, which is how we, you know, we supported supported ourselves. Were you married at this? I was married. I got okay. married in 1989. Okay, so this is probably somewhat of a strain to be... It's, it's a strain to be away uh, from your family, and um, I didn't have any, uh, I didn't have a kid then. Um, but you know, I was starting to get burned out from the traveling and the touring and, um, I just decided at one point, you know, I, I, want to do something different now for a while. You know, I just, I can't do this anymore. Mm -hmm. Did you Um, know what it was that you wanted to do? Well, I think I was going to get, you know, I probably wanted to get back into the graphic design and art world. Um, I started to take some classes, um, by this time computers have, come on the scene mm-hmm. and, and the things that I had learned 10 years earlier in art school just, yeah out the yeah. door and, and everything started to go computerized so I started to take some classes on that and get more involved in that and I thought you know I think maybe at this point um, you know I want to stop the dead milkman so you know I told them in a meeting and um, it was tough but I think it was the right thing for me to do at the time so there was no thought that the band would continue sounds you. Um, you know, I didn't. If they wanted to, I, I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have minded or whatever. I know they had considered it briefly, but I think they decided in the end that no, they didn't want to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, you know, people went on to do different things after then. 
Um, I mean, I, I, we, we actually did record uh, one more record. We did a, we did a tour. It was going to, we didn't tell people it was our final tour, but it was our final tour. Mm-hmm. And then we also released one more record after that. So, you know, it kind of wound down over a year. But, uh, um, you know, I guess I sort of felt we had run our course a little bit. You know, like I said, the music scene seemed to change a little bit. Um, college radio wasn't, I don't think, what it used to be mm-hmm. in the 80s. Um, and I just didn't want to get in the van and, you know, drive for six hours yeah. every day. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I think the cumulative effect of yeah. that is probably pretty exhausting. Been doing that for eight years, I think that yeah, was enough. Yeah, that is a long run. Um, at this point, I've interviewed now, in speaking to you, the three living members of the original band. Right. Uh, and the person that I can't speak to, obviously, is, is Dave. Dave Blood, uh, who took his own life in 2004. Four, yes. Right. Uh, I didn't talk to the other two members, uh, Rodney and Joe, very much about him in, in their interviews. So I thought that perhaps you could speak for him or about him uh, here. I could try, sure. Yeah. I mean, he was a few years older than us. Um, I think about maybe four or five years older than us. Um, he had gone to school out in uh, Indiana at Purdue, and there was a bit of a scene out there. Um, uh, and his brother Joe, I guess, was out there for a time, and they, they came back to Philadelphia and got involved with the scene. Um, you know, he was just, he was a fun and funny guy, really smart, gone to school for economics. Um, uh, you know, great bass player, fun to play with as a drummer, um, very distinctive style. Mm-hmm. Um, played with a pick when I guess most people weren't playing with a pick. Um, so yeah, I mean, and he was he was uh, my uh, hotel roommate for our, for many years. Mm-hmm. So you know, I I felt a terrible loss when he when he went. Did <clears throat> did he suffer from depression? Was this something that? Well, I mean, I guess towards the end he did, but um, not during the band. Not that I was aware of. He did have health problems. He had severe asthma. So, you know, his health was always kind of on the edge that way. Mm-hmm. So um, so he did have health problems in that regard. Um, but as far as depression, you know, not that I was aware of during the band years. It wasn't until later. And, um, you know, his, his uh, mother became very sick and he took care of her for a long time before she died. And I know that really affected him deeply. Uh, so... Did you remain friends or friendly with him in the years after the band? I did. We did. We all, you know, we all remained friends. We all would see each other occasionally. Um, And, you know, I actually went on to make some more music with Joe. And he had the group called Butterfly Joe in the late 90s. And um, we'd go see Rodney Burnwich Burn play sometimes. And I would see Dave, too. Um, He was living out in the suburbs, kind of uh, near where I am now. And, uh... But he decided to go, uh, he went back to school. Um, he was studying uh, Serbo-Croatian culture and, and uh, history and so forth. Do you know what the seed of his interest in that subject I do, was? actually. Um, he, when we, we actually did two tours of Europe. Um, and one of the places that we played on our first tour of Europe, we actually went into Yugoslavia back when it was still mm-hmm. Yugoslavia. Yugoslavia, yeah. And um, for some reason, he just resonated, or that 
place resonated with him. Um, it wasn't anything to do with his his cultural background. Not, so no, not his cultural background, but for some reason, the the people that he met there and and the things that he was exposed to there, I think somehow resonated with him that he became super friendly with people there and decided that well maybe he could do something and back get back there someday. So um, so he did go back to school and and um, he spent. Um, I don't know how much time all in all, but he spent months or maybe even up to a year there towards the late 90s. Mm-hmm. And then I guess there, you know, more war, Bosnia war came around and he actually had to be, he actually, I guess, evacuated to uh, to Czechoslovakia for a short time. And he was, I guess, hoping to get back into uh uh, Bosnia, but uh, it just became untenable. Yeah, I mean, so he, he ended up coming back to the United States, and I think I think that's probably you know one of the seeds of his depression was is that he couldn't fulfill his goal of sort of getting an education in this area of study and then going back over there and getting a job or doing something over there. So mm-hmm. um, you know that probably had something to do with it. Were you aware, or were the other band members aware um, towards the latter years of his life that there was a, a depression? Uh, uh, yes. Um, I mean, at, at one point, I think he had tried to take his life once already. Um, and, you know, he got help, thankfully. And, and I went to visit him, actually, uh, in a in a facility or whatever. And we had a good time. And, and he was getting out very shortly thereafter. So I think things were on the up and up. I thought that, you know, he had made some progress and things were good. Um, but, uh, you know, I think the death of his mother kind of sent him back into the depths of depression. So, okay. Um, in the, the wake of his death, the band wound up coming back together, yes, to perform. A... We we did, um, uh, yeah. We we had a uh, we had a memorial service um, out in media actually at the Media Friends, um, which was open uh, to friends and family, and and some fans definitely showed up there. And um, but uh, I think Joe's uh, um, Dave's brothers, Joe and Kurt, his youngest brother. Um, thought that maybe we could get a show, you know, actually play a show with some bands in, in you know, in Philly from back in the day and um, has, have a more public kind mm. of memorial thing. And so um, it kind of turned into, okay, well, you know, maybe we can get somebody to play bass for us. And that's how you know, Dan Drew, Dan Stevens came into play. And he had been in bands with Joe, the, the low budgets and... Um, uh, and he already knew the song because he was a Milkman fan, so that mm-hmm. made it easy. Right. Um, so yeah, so so we played. Uh, I guess it was in the fall of two thousand and four. Uh, we played two shows at the Troc, and we had uh, like the Electric Mullet Muffin and FOD and some other bands from back in the day um, play. And it was you know it was nice. It was uh, great crowds, and we had fun doing it. It was mm-hmm. you know it was fun, but we didn't think we would do anything after that. It was kind of like okay, here's our. Send off the date. <laughs> so, <laughs> and then, but ultimately, uh, the band won. Well, that was in two thousand and four, and then we we spent another four years not doing anything. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't until two thousand and eight that this guy from Austin, Texas, started bothering me via email. Um, his name is Graham. Uh, he puts on a festival down in the fall in Austin called the Fun 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 Festival which is a great festival. I don't think a lot of people know about it. What is the theme of the festival? 
it's just a it's just it's a music festival, but they have like three or four stages. They have a comedy stage. They have like a, uh, you know, like a, an indie rock stage. They have a hip hop stage, and they have a punk rock stage. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, one of the things that he likes to do is, at least for a while, he was trying to get bands who hadn't played together in a long time back together to to play play the festival. And it turns out that we actually have another connection with. Uh, Graham, because um, one of the albums we recorded down in Austin, we did three albums down there. One of the albums has a song that opens the record called Beige Sunshine, and that song has a, uh, a kind of chorus choir of kids singing the opening words to it. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that Graham was one of those kids when he was like 13 years old. Oh, that's great. We were there in the... <clears throat> The guy, you know, our our friend Brian, who produced the record, you know, just called up his friends and say, "Hey, we need, you know, we need like a dozen kids in here. Can you get them to come in?" And he he turned out to be one of the kids. So he was like, had been a Milkman fan for all his life, and he's like, you know, come on, guys, you got to come down and play this festival. You can do it. You know, he just kept pestering us, mm-hmm. and he threw some money at us, and you know, like, come on up, you know, you, you'll you haven't been to Austin in uh, what 15, 20 years. Come mm-hmm. on, it'll be a lot of fun. So we finally, finally relented, and um, and we said we would do it, and we asked Dan to come back and play bass, and we rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed, and we played actually two warm-up shows here in Philly. Um, we played under a different name at Johnny Brenda's. I think we were called the Les Enfants du Prague that night, and, um, and then we did a show in the church basement, which was a lot of fun. So, you know, we did a little warm-up, and then we went down and played the 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 Fun, Fun, Fun Fest, which was a blast. It was like, you know... It was fun, fun, fun. It was fun, fun, fun. And it was a great festival. Um, uh, all played right next to us. They had the stage set up, you know, two, two side by side, and they played a set before us. And uh, I forget who else was there. The Adolescents were there, and um, all, you know, some great, great bands, and... Uh, so we had a good time, and it went really well, and we had fun doing it. Um, and it's at that point when we came back, um, we kind of had a little band meeting, and we were like, you know, yeah, it was a lot of fun. But the, you know, do you want to do it again, and we or do more of it? And we decided that sure we would do more of it, but we didn't want to just play the old songs. Mm-hmm. So at that point is when we decided that we would, you know try and write some songs and see what came out and if it turned into anything we thought was worthwhile or whatever we would continue in that vein so that's what we've been doing ever since 2008 how many records have you done since then we've done just one full-length record that came out in um 2011 called the king in yellow um over the let me interrupt you for a second that's right who who came up with the title for that i mean i know what that is a reference to yeah and which has come into some prominence. Well, recently. yeah, I mean, uh, we were uh, ahead of the game there, too. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, um, I should point out that True Detective, the HBO series, references the King in Yellow, the, the was it early 20th century, late 19th century? Uh, uh, yeah, Rodney was familiar with the book. Um, Rodney is the one who told us about it. He said, oh, there, there's this book called The King in Yellow. I actually I bought a copy. I haven't read it, but I've mm-hmm. peeked at it. Um, but Rodney was telling us about this book that supposedly if you read it, you know, you went insane or something like that. Yeah. Um, and somehow, Ronnie, Ronnie, you know, Ronnie's lyrics on that on our record somehow he ties them together or whatever into a thread, and um, 
you know, we, at one point he suggested we call it the King in Yellow, and, and we all agreed, and, and it seemed to make sense. I don't know why, but um, anyway, that's do, it. do you find the sales have spiked uh, in the last four? No, months? I don't think so. I can't. Yeah. We, we can't attribute because for some reason that the you know the book came uh, became uh, maybe not a bestseller, but started yeah. to sell lots and lots of copies. That's so kind of people unusual. People type that into the you know Google search. Your record is going to come up too. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of strange. Yeah, that it would become prominent again. Um, but that came, yeah, that came out in, in uh, 2011. And then over the last year, we've been putting out a series of seven inch singles. We did four of them. Um, and we would, uh, we'd go into the studio and we would record three songs. We'd do two for the single and then we'd have like a bonus download only track kind of thing. Who's releasing the seven inches? We're doing all this stuff ourselves. So we're not signed to a label now. So that's another thing, you know, it's kind of come back full circle. It's definitely more DIY now, and we definitely we're, we don't have a label. We're doing it all ourselves, which is you know it's hard um, with our you know families and jobs and that kind of stuff. Who um, who runs the practical realities of these releases in terms of like pressing and mailing copies out? I mean, you're talking about seven inch EPs, so there's a physical. We actually well be the magic of the internet. Yeah. <laughs> we actually uh, use a couple of online services to handle this now for us. Um, uh, there's a there's a company called Nimbit. Um, there's a bunch of them out there, but you can actually. And the reason we chose this one in particular is, is that they'll do warehousing for you. Okay. So in other words, we'll 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 arrange for things to be manufactured, and we keep some to ourselves so that we can sell them at yeah, shows. You don't have a shit ton. Of I don't have a basement full of yeah. <laughs> so, um, but we send them off to them. Uh, they're located up in New England, and um, and then they have an online store which we incorporated into our own website. Uh, so. You can buy directly from us, mm -hmm. but also there's the other component where the stuff uh, gets submitted to the online services like Amazon and iTunes and all that kind of stuff. So you can download digital versions mm -hmm. of the, of the music. Um, so yeah, we're I mean we're doing it doing it ourselves yeah, again. That's great. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you've kind of reached all the different platforms because sometimes you talk to some bands who uh, aren't knowledgeable of what you know the current methods of people uh, you know acquiring music and sometimes miss out on these opportunities to just reach a lot more people yeah i mean it's definitely difficult because there's so many there's so many outlets now that, that you know i mean whenever possible we tell people to try and go to our site and you know because we'll make the most money and benefit from it which allows us to put more records out so okay. mm -hmm. um but you know having this stuff out there is great you know um you know, it's a lot easier to book tours and things now with the magic of email and things like that. No more maximum rock and roll. No, <laughs> <laughs> no scene reports from yeah. Iowa. Um, uh, you know, so it's 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 interesting how it's it's come around like that. Um, but you know, as I said, it is it is a lot of work, and I can see how um, you know it could be a full time job for bands again. You know, mm -hmm. just taking care of of your. Uh, brand for lack of a better word right, right. and managing your online presence and that mm -hmm. kind of stuff it, it's a lot of work um which may not appeal to some bands and which is why some bands still want to get signed to labels i guess so they don't yeah, have to think else, about that stuff yeah they can just make the music yeah uh, and not there is value to that so i, I yeah, you know sure. uh you run the website right i run the website the the website started up 
you know, before we had sort of gotten back together, um, because I had gone back to school and gotten into web development design and that kind of stuff. So at some point I registered deadmilkment.com and, you know, have been running the website there. Um, I think one of the great features of it, though, is something that I'm not responsible for starting, which is the Dead Milkman free-for-all, which is, um, you know, an old-fashioned bulletin board, online bulletin board, which was actually started by a fan out in the Midwest um, who sadly passed away a number of years ago. But at some point, um, I you know, I took over the... Uh, uh, the concept um, and incorporated it into our website, and you know we still have an uh, active fan base that goes on there and communicates about shows and you know they they talk about what other bands and things they like. It's very as a free for all. We mm-hmm. don't really police it in that. Yeah, regards. well, I mean, but I imagine that there must be some danger in that in terms of if it's a free for all. There's someone who's saying something real fucking nasty on there, right? I mean, it's, do you have to... Our fans have been pretty good. I mean, uh, we have, we have you know, dedicated diehard fans, so I haven't found anything too nasty. So no one's, like, expounding on their racial theories? No, I, we like haven't, I haven't come about, across you know, any of that. You live in the nicest part of the internet. Right? <laughs> it always seems like anything open to public, there's always someone there saying something really Yeah, now that this is a, on tape, somebody will go and, and ruin it. Don't do that. Um, but, you know, I made a couple of the, uh, the longtime members admin, so they can go in. And, and police things if there's a problem but we really haven't had too much trouble right. it's been nice and um you know and i think it's kind of an extension of something that we've always tried to do which was be open to our fans and and friendly and that kind of thing um you know we would make a point of mixing with the crowd watching the opening bands anybody who came up to us and talked to us you know I hear stories about some bands who lock themselves away in a dressing room and don't want to mix we've always been receptive to meeting with fans and that kind of thing and I think the website carries through with that and we have people now who I've you know when we started playing again in, in 2008 who maybe became fans of the band who weren't around when we were back in the day, mm-hmm. who are now diehard fans. And now we go to shows and, you know, we get to meet them. And it's kind of cool to see this sort of new generation of people coming to shows. Yeah, that was something I was, I was going to ask you about is that um, because you've been around for so long, you've dealt with a few generations of young music fans and then some young, young music fans becoming older music fans producing Offspring, right. bringing them to yeah. the show. Yeah. Uh, you've always created a, a music that's been very welcoming to outsiders and weirdos. Uh, <laughs> that's right. And it kind of nurturing. I mean, I, I like the fact that the, the songs, in effect, sort of you know nurture this kind of community of weird people because it it, it creates something that speaks to them. Right, right. right. Uh, and you, in dealing with the website, probably hear most directly from the people who have been influenced by your work. Do you get a lot of messages from people saying, "Man, I heard this record back," you know, that sort of? Yeah, we get we get mail saying, you know, you know, I've been a fan for you know twenty five years, and I'm so glad you're coming to Florida. You know, I, I never got to see you live back in the day, and now I can come see your show. And, you know, mm-hmm. it's it's been gratifying. It's it's been great, and like you said, the crowds have been wide ranging from young kids to their parents who were you know around back in the day. So yeah. it's been it's been cool that way. 
<laughs> I know that my experiences as a young person when I would see you perform, um, the shows were always very different from the more hardcore shows I was going to because they were just a lot more fun. People were kind of dancing in a way that they weren't trying to kill each other and everybody <laughs> seemed to be so cheerful and filled with, like there was an infectious quality of what the band was giving out and I think that that was always really refreshing for me as a young person to not have to have someone kicking me in the right, head. Right, right, right. There was a cheerful quality to the to performances. Yeah, yeah I, 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 you know, uh, it, it's been great. It's been a lot of fun um, meeting the new generation of fans. Uh, it, it's it's nice to see that they're still around. Uh, so I guess that sort of sum up, uh, you have children or one? I just have a son who's who's 15 now. He'll be 16 in, in October. What does he think of the, the, the legacy that you've created, this body? I think, I think he's cool with it. I think he likes it. I mean, as younger, I mean, he's been to some sound checks and things, and he's been to a couple of our shows now. Um, uh, in fact, we took him down to the uh, Fun 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 Fest. Um, you know, I think he's into it. I mean, he's definitely into music now. He's into... Uh, he, he and he plays drums, but he also plays guitar, and he's in the, the the high school marching band now. So you know, I think he's on his way to having music in his life somehow. I mean, he's he's thinking of going to school for music, so that's nice for me to see him kind of mm -hmm. taking it a little further. Yeah. What yeah. does he gravitate towards in terms of music, uh, musical interest? He's changed a little bit. I mean, he is into. It's interesting for me because he's into sort of more. Uh, proggy stuff, but that stuff is kind of more metally right now. I mean, he got himself, uh, well, we get got him a seven string guitar, you know, which uh -huh. is kind of interesting. So he's into all these weird tunings. And as a former fan of Prague, I can get into some of the weird time signatures and stuff mm -hmm. that he's into. You're not going to come back to the Prague <laughs> now at this point? No uh, Gentle I, Giant records? I had some Gentle Giant when I was younger. So I, yeah, I definitely like Gentle Giant. Um, uh, so, you know. He he's definitely expanding his palette. Like um, when I pick him up for for you know at school events or whatever, I'll play music in the car from my iPod or whatever, and it's nice to hear him say, "Oh, what's that? That's pretty interesting." You know, just odd, weird stuff. Like the other day, it was uh, soul coughing or something. He had never heard of them, and so I know that it. Uh, piqued an interest in him because I found out later that, you know, he went on YouTube and looked up all the soul call things. So if I can keep exposing him to stuff like that, that's cool. So. That's great. Super. <laughs> well, thank you very much for talking to me. I really, really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It's great to be part of the program. Thanks.